This war has been more costly for Riyadh than for Tehran. Riyadh spends millions there every month while the cost for Iran has been significantly lower and the fact that this war has prolonged for so long and Saudi Arabia has been directly involved there right now and it's desperately trying to find a way out has also exposed the kingdom and its weaknesses. Even more Saudi Arabia has suffered from attacks on its soil and also from attacks in the soil of its uh, allies and it seems that there is no positive outcome at the moment in the war in Yemen. Welcome to another episode of the Diplomatic Academy, The Conversation. I'm your host, Petros Petrikos. This episode looks at the Saudi-Iranian rivalry and the ways through which this rivalry shapes the Middle East and the wider region. For this episode, we are hosting Alexandra Nikopoulou, who will be telling us a bit more about this specific topic. And hi, Alexandra, and welcome to the conversation. It's great to have you on board for this episode. Hi, Petros. It is a pleasure to participate in the episode, and I'm sure we're going to have a great discussion on this matter that defines the Middle East in the last years. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and uh, before we get to it, I'd like to say a few words about Alexandra who is a PhD candidate at the University of Peloponnese in Greece. Her research focuses on proxy wars, regional security, the antagonism between Saudi Arabia and Iran, and the role of great powers in the Middle Eastern subsystem. She holds a bachelor's degree in international and European studies from the University of Piraeus and an MA in Mediterranean studies from the University of Peloponnese. And since 2017, she serves as an associate researcher at the Center for Mediterranean, Middle East and Islamic Studies. I'd like to begin by first setting some groundwork, laying down the foundations in terms of where we are situated historically, how this is linked and why is it is of relevance. So, I mean, there it is perhaps somewhat disputed, but I think a lot of people, a lot of analysts would also agree that we started seeing this, this turning point of uh, relations from 1979 when we saw a series of important events unraveling in the Middle East including the Grand Mosque seizure in Mecca by extremists, the Iranian Revolution, and of course the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. These events now matter because they've had a significant impact on not just internal Iranian and Saudi Arabian politics, but also on a wider regional and international scale, if you like, in line with what was happening during the Cold War. So how do you think, how would you uh, read these events and uh, how... Would you say that relations between Iran and Saudi Arabia have transformed from that point onwards? Well, I do believe that this is a great starting point to actually initiate this discussion. Uh, 1979 and all these events signify important milestones that changed the course of history in the Middle East and in the wider region and initiated a new period in regional politics, change the regional balance of power, and also the factors that define alliances uh, in this particular subsystem. Uh, what I would like to note, uh, just to give some context, is that the Iranian-Saudi antagonism actually precedes 1979. Both powers uh, 
existed in the system uh, before this milestone. Uh, they were both part of the Twin Pillar Alliance that was uh, established through the Nixon Doctrine in 1969. And they were actually competing for influence and regional leadership from that point on. So uh, in the 1970s, we have Saudi Arabia and Iran competing for leadership in the region, being part of the Twin Pillar Alliance. At the time, we have to note that Iran was the major uh, player and the major pillar in this alliance with the United States. Iran was a secular regime at the time. It has a it had a close relationship with the state, while Saudi Arabia was a more conservative regime. Religion was actually at the forefront. So the U.S. was a bit closer uh, to Iran. And that was also due to the fact that Saudi Arabia was also entangled in the uh, Arab-Israel dispute at the time. So there were many instances during this period that Riyadh had to maintain a balance between its regional aspirations and its role as a, a leader between the Arabs and also its relationship to the United uh, States. So the antagonism and the rivalry between the two is there prior to 1979. However, 1979 marks a very significant point where we see uh, a very uh, distinct change within the system. Uh, the Islamic Revolution was a watershed that defined a new era in Iranian politics and in Tehran's role in the region. It actually uh, was a, a major systemic change and the maybe the first successful Islamic revolution it was the starting point of this intensified rivalry between Saudi Arabia and Iran as Tehran became more involved in regional politics and domestic affairs of third countries. There was also discussion on exporting the revolution. So uh, we see a very important change there. As for the siege of the Grand Mosque, uh, I have to say there were at the time some reports that indicated Iran was involved uh, in the incident. However, uh, right now we know that uh, it was an incident that took place uh, due to uh, radical Islamists that actually wanted to serve a message to the Saudi regime uh, regarding, uh, let's say, the policies that they had at the time. And this particular incident also served as an indication that the Saudis had failed in a way to protect the holy places. And that was also the narrative and the rhetoric that Iran employed at the point. Uh, and as for the Soviet invasion in Afghanistan, I believe that it was one of the most uh, important cases where we see a uh, a great power being involved in the politics of a region. It was um, a war that led to the fall at some time of the Soviet Union. Uh, and it, uh, it also created the conditions for the 
rise of the Mujahideens, who would later play a major role uh, regarding security in the region and regarding the rise of extremism in the following years. Now, the common factor between these events is that they all contributed to the increased role of religion in regional politics. There was uh, this trend of Islamization across the Middle East and the rise of sectarian strife. This all coincided with, uh, let's say, the fall of the Arab nationalism after Nasser's death. And it also coincided with this uh, general idea that the Arabs had been unable to defeat Israel in the wars that took place after 1967 and throughout the 1970s. We see Iran, that is now an Islamic regime that supports uh, the exporting of the revolution and questions the legitimacy of the Saudis as protectors of Islam. We see Riyadh that is supporting Sunni Islamic forces in other operational theaters in Pakistan, in Afghanistan. And we also see the involvement and the interference of a great power in the politics of a state in the Middle East. So all these events changed the discussion in the region and also brought religion to the limelight. This Islamization, interference in domestic affairs, and religion starting to play a role as a factor in alliance formation. Mm-hmm. Well, it's very important and actually quite interesting to know this uh, historic trajectory to how all these events are actually interlinked to some extent in how they played a role from external to internal and vice versa, changing and shaping the politics of the region, but also transforming this rivalry that we're talking about. It's good that you've pointed out that the rivalry actually pre-exists the 1979 incidents. I would also say that, indeed, they have always been competitive, both uh, Saudi Arabia and Iran. But at the same time, before the revolution, they were not exactly hostile with one another like they are today. They were on relatively friendly terms, but still retaining that competition. And this rivalry has only deepened and transformed into this, uh, what I call an influence grasp instead of a power grasp over the entire Middle East region. In present times, what would you say that these two countries focus on the most? And if you want to highlight specific examples or other cases, like notably, if you want to, if you if you want to follow a specific timeline, we can also incorporate the 2011 Arab Spring uh, events. Uh, is there a particular issue, case, a cause, or area that both of these countries, both Saudi Arabia and uh, Iran, actually compete over immensely, where they place additional focus against and pin down against each other? Well, there are certainly some issues that. Uh let's say, dominate the rivalry between Saudi Arabia and Iran. It is true, as you said, they were on friendly terms during the years before the revolution. They both belonged at the camp supporting the U.S. They were U.S. allies. All that changed in 1979. Now, uh, to this day, I believe that we should start focusing to the period after the 2000s and the uh, interventions uh, of the United States in Iraq and Afghanistan. 
because this is the period that actually uh, starts transforming the competition between the two and brings some issues to the limelight. Before that, in the 1990s, there is a brief period of rapprochement between the two, but then in the 2000s, we have the United States invading Afghanistan, invading Iraq, and actually having a presence in the region. It has boots on the ground. This creates, let's say, some uh, insecurity for Iran, and it kind of starts a process that accelerates the uh, rivalry between the two. At the time, we see that Iran gradually started enhancing its uh, alliances. It starts building uh, building up on the Arab-Israeli dispute. And we see that there's a discussion regarding winning the Arab street. Both actors, and this is true to this day, want to win over the Arab public opinion, uh, serve as leaders of the Muslims. Iran tries to refrain from talking about being a leader of the Shiites. It talks about being a leader of all the Muslims. And they also try to have a leading role when it comes to the Arab-Israeli dispute. So this for Iran started, let's say, more around the first decade of the 21st century. It is a time where we see the formation of the resistance axis. In Lebanon, we have some very important developments. Uh, Hezbollah's role starts to increase. It has a very important victory against Israel, and it's the same with Hamas. We see an increased role of Iran in Iraq, given that the United States weren't as successful in the rebuilding process and uh, Shiite forces were able to uh, become more dominant in Iraqi politics. So at the time, these are the main issues that define their their rivalry. Uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, during the same period, was fairly limited in the way, it could, let's say, it could try to satisfy it could satisfy its interests it had to sustain the balance between trying to be the leader of the arabs and it had to also manage its relationship with the united states given that they were on bad terms after 9-11 so all these developments coupled up with the gradual retreat of washington from the Middle East and the adoption of a strategy of offshore balancing created a vacuum in the region that allowed for the competition to flourish in the years that followed. Now, focusing more to the events after the Arab Spring and to this day, we see that actually until the Arab Spring, Iran had managed to reach the peak of its power in the region and it had managed to, let's say, outperform Saudi Arabia in most operational theaters. This changed in 2011, given that Iran would be challenged during the Arab Spring. Iran's initial reaction after the uprisings was positive. However, it quickly became clear that the Arab Spring would also deprive Iran from its friends and would also deprive it from its foes. So 
Iran couldn't build upon the politics of despair that it was building on in the previous years. So this kind of changed the balance of power between the two and provided Saudi Arabia with some leverage during this period. So at the time, what matters most to these players, let's say that in the first decade of the 21st century, it was the Arab-Israeli dispute being the leaders of the Muslims and, of course, acquiring regional hegemony. After 2011, the Arab-Israeli dispute is not really at the top of their priorities. We see that we move from a regional to a more local, if you want, level, and a more national level. So the goals of both players change as well. They're focusing more on building on alliances, either through supporting their allies in uh, neighboring countries or through participating in proxy wars, again, through uh, aiding their their allies to gain more uh, power within the war so that they can increase their influence on a, on a regional level. What needs to be underlined is that uh, after the Arab Spring, we see that this, the system is more volatile and it's also the states in the Middle East have become more porous. We see that the institutions have been weakened, so there is more space for interference. So we're moving past the regional level to the local one, and we see that this rivalry now plays out more in the area of the Levant and the Eastern Mediterranean rather than, let's say, in the Gulf itself, where both Iran and Saudi Arabia are. And mainly due to the fact that the countries in the Gulf are a bit more stable and they're also not so open to Iranian uh, influence, of course, with the the exception of Yemen. You know, this is very interesting how you've uh, compared both regions on the, uh, well, with the situation in the Gulf and the situation in the Eastern Mediterranean. And I'd like to get there in a minute. First, I, I also like to highlight uh, how, you know, when it comes to these kind of cases, we often, when we try to analyze it and when we try to explain it, we usually do so by referring to specific historical events. We have a timeline. It's very sort of a, like a process tracing kind of a technique where we assess the, through the different events how externally these impacts policy, perhaps internally or even within the international realm of politics. And you've said, you said this transition, which is very interesting from the more international or regional shifting down to the local. And it's good to note these things, but in, when it comes to theory, I'm very curious about how one should or could approach uh, this rivalry. But I mean, instead of getting into the debates, uh, there's so many theories that we can apply for this kind of a case. How do you personally approach, uh, theoretically speaking, this rivalry? How do you study it? How do you analyze it? Well, the center of the rivalry lies, of course, on national interest, competition, and the struggle for regional hegemony. In the recent years, it has evolved as a zero-sum game where Iran and Saudi Arabia compete for the expansion of their influence through alliance formation, 
and uh, through spheres of influence. So I believe that given that it also plays out in this volatile and to a certain extent anarchic system of the Middle East, I would approach the issue through the realist school of thought and I think probably through neorealism that provides the analytical tools to uh, better understand how this rivalry plays out. Now, personally, given that I focus more on the issue of proxy wars, in recent years, as we discussed, we've moved from this discussion on a regional level to the local ones. So I believe that the theories on proxy wars and the way the Saudi-Iranian rivalry plays out in civil wars, it is important to view it through that prism. Of course, I also look into the issue through the concept of new wars and identities because identity has become a factor in alliance formation given that we see that national identities have given way to subnational or even transnational ones so this plays a great role when it comes to alliance formation and of course regionalism has emerged in Middle Eastern politics after, let's say, the end of the first decade of the 21st century. And it plays a great role in, uh, in this rivalry as the two powers have tried to fill in the vacuum that the U.S., a great power, left due to its gradual retreat from the region. So in general, I've, I would view it through uh, the neorealist lens and i would also i also focus on the issue through proxy wars because this is the main way this rivalry has been playing out throughout the last decade if you want to go if you want to extend it and go beyond the specific rivalry if you want to because spe- you've you've mentioned the concept of identity which is so important and then you have at your disposal other tools to combine with that. You don't necess- we don't necessarily have to focus on one specific theory or approach. And it's good because uh, this changes depending on what it is that we are studying, what it is that we are analyzing. And it's very good to hear that. And, but um, you also mentioned, you referred to, you, you, had, uh, you started talking about Yemen right before we jumped into theory. And uh, I'd like to ask you, how does the crisis in Yemen factor in when it comes to this rivalry? Yeah, I think it's very interesting and unfortunately uh, underreported in recent days because of other significant events out there that have sort of overshadowed this. Do you feel that both Iran and Saudi Arabia have a vested interest in, for the situation in Yemen to unravel towards a specific direction? It's true that the civil war in Yemen is greatly underreported. Uh, it is not as well known as the one in Syria, but it does play a great role and it has a great impact when it comes to the Iranian-Saudi rivalry. To be fair, Yemen has been far more important for Saudi Arabia than uh, for Iran. The country itself suffers from several divisions, internal frictions. We see subnational, tribal, religious, uh, and other identities that have taken over the national one. And there seems to be no sustainable solution for the resolution of the crisis, probably in the near future. The main competing factions comprised by the government that 
let's say is supported by Saudi Arabia. Uh, Saudi Arabia also supports some other Sunni forces in the region. And let's say the other factor are the Houthis who are supported by Iran. Of course, we see that there are other players as well. We have the Southern Movement that has gained support mainly from the United Arab Emirates and some other players supported by Qatar and Turkey. Now, why Yemen is so important, even though it's so uh, under the situation that is so underdocumented? Uh, Yemen is bordering Saudi Arabia. It's, many say, the soft underbelly of Saudi Arabia. It was always considered a security threat for Riyadh. And Saudi Arabia has a history of uh, interfering in Yemeni politics. It has engaged in border disputes with the Houthis even uh, before the Arab Spring and before the collapse of the regime in Yemen. Uh, the civil trend proxy conflict there started as a proxy war, but then it turned to direct involvement uh, after the launch of the Operation Decisive Storm by uh, Saudi Arabia and other uh, Gulf countries in 2015. So we see that Saudi Arabia is more engaged in Yemen, it has invested more, and it has a vital interests there. It's not just a country where it can benefit if its allies are actually in power. It is a country that affects Saudi security. Iran, from its side, it doesn't have as close relations to the Houthis. Many say that Iran and the Houthis are connected through the Shiite religion. They actually follow a different branch of Shiite Islam. Iran follows the 12-er Shiite Islam, while the Houthis are Zaidis, so they have some differences there. There is a certain level of support from Iran, but in the case of Yemen, Tehran is mainly happy to see that Saudi Arabia is occupied in this conflict, and it's not occupied in other operational theaters that are considered more vital to Iran. This war has been more costly for Riyadh than for Tehran. Riyadh spends millions there every month, while the cost for Iran has been significantly lower. And the fact that this war uh, has prolonged for so long, and Saudi Arabia has been directly involved there right now, and it's desperately trying to find a way out, has also exposed the kingdom and its weaknesses. And even more, Saudi Arabia has suffered from attacks on its soil and also from attacks in the soil of its uh, allies. The Emirates also suffered attacks last year and at the beginning of this year as well. And it seems that there, there is no positive outcome at the moment in the war in Yemen. And Saudi Arabia is, tr is still trying to find a, a way out from this war. So, yes, they both have, a, let's say, a vision for the, for the country. Saudi Arabia would like to see this new council that has been established after the ceasefire to succeed and would like to see the Houthis make some concessions, which 
really did not seem very possible the last couple of months. Uh, While Iran at the moment is happy to see the situation being prolonged and seeing Saudi Arabia uh, still being engaged in a war that is only a burden to Riyadh. Yeah, we see two different approaches and it's uh, mm-hmm. quite uh, on opposite ends. Mm-hmm. So you, you did mention earlier as well about the situation, how different it is in the Gulf in terms of, well, not exceedingly different, but in terms of how more stable you said that the states in the Gulf are when it comes to managing uh, the situation, whereas in the Eastern Mediterranean, there are more, of course, added crises uh, in the Levant. And uh, my question actually relates to policymaking, specifically the individuals themselves, the policymakers, how these, um, this rivalry shapes national strategy and policy in both the Gulf and Eastern Mediterranean, respectively. How should they attempt to break down and understand this rivalry? And ultimately, why should they care? Well, in short, they should care because this rivalry affects them. Both actors have alliances within the states, particularly in Eastern Mediterranean. So every state in the Middle East should care about the way this uh, rivalry plays out and how it affects their national politics. In recent years, we see that the competition and the rivalry for the leadership of the Middle East has moved from the Arab core, let's say Egypt, Iraq, to the periphery. So we see that there's been this shift from the core of the Arab world to the Gulf, and there's a change in the actors that actually try to claim claim hegemony in the Middle East. Within this context, the Saudi-Iranian antagonism has become decisive for many conflicts in the in the area and we see that both actors have alliances in third countries and even in some cases of the gulf so this rivalry affects several issues that are central to middle eastern politics such as the arab israeli dispute but also the civil wars that erupted after the arab spring understanding the saudi iranian rivalry means understanding and breaking down the leverage its player has in every country, their strategic interests, the way they may affect national politics to satisfy their own national interests. And this does not mean that Saudi or Iranian allies within a country are simple tools of, uh, let's say, Saudi or Iranian uh, policy. And you mentioned Lebanon, Hezbollah. Uh, Hezbollah has its own agenda, as all other players. They have their own interests when it comes to national politics. Yet, it is important to identify where these interests align with Saudi or Iranian ones and where they may actually divert. So we see that Saudi-Iranian politics may play out in other countries, and this is why policymakers should take note of the way this rivalry actually evolves and how it may affect them on a national level. As for the Gulf, because we know it is a 
let's say a different case from the from the rest of the Middle East and particularly from the Eastern Mediterranean. Uh, one might think that Gulf countries are have some close ties with Saudi Arabia and they just fall under the Saudi umbrella of influence. However, this isn't true. Gulf countries also try to uh, satisfy their own interests. And on that note, they also have some relations with Iran. And I'm talking more uh, regarding trade and uh, in some cases in education, while we also see the case of Qatar that had relations with Iran and also had this rivalry with the rest of the Gulf that actually resulted also in the embargo against Doha in 2017. And also we see the case of Oman that has traditionally adopted a more neutral stance in the Saudi-Iranian rivalry. So in general, it is important for policymakers to uh, calculate the way this rivalry might affect them, but also see beyond it and see how uh, they can satisfy their own interests within the strategic environment. So what I would like to say is that the view that the Saudi-Iranian rivalry creates clear borders between players and some camps, it's not entirely true. Uh, there are players that, even within the Gulf, that take account of this rivalry, but also try to uh, let's say, satisfy their own goals within the system. And looking into the region in general, and I'm talking more about the Eastern Mediterranean and also the way the West might try to engage uh, with, the, with the region and even with players from the Gulf, Western policymakers also have to consider the way that the Iranian-Saudi antagonism might affect regional power balance, might affect alliance formation, and it might affect the way that uh, they engage uh, with the region and their potential allies from the Middle East. And in my opinion, they should utilize pragmatism while engaging with the area. They should take account of the antagonism and see how it affects them, but also not let it limit their strategic choices. That's very interesting and very insightful, Alexandra. I'd like to ask, um, if you don't mind me, for just for a final question. This really strongly relates to your own research, your own PhD. Could you just share a few words about what your work is currently concentrated on just to give our listeners a, a better uh, understanding of what it is that you're working on. My research focuses, of course, on the Iranian-Saudi rivalry in the Middle East, uh, but most importantly in the way it plays out uh, after 2011 and the Arab Spring milestone and the proxy wars in Syria and Yemen. So I actually examine this antagonism within the specter of these two case studies. I focus on the way each player has uh, has tried to engage with players in Syria and Yemen, the way they're trying to satisfy their interests, whether they're 
following a coherent strategy or whether they're just trying to form alliances solely based on their own interests. And I'm also examining the way great powers actually play out in this equation, how they are, uh, let's say, how they are engaging with Saudi Arabia and Iran in the proxy wars in Syria and Yemen, and in this new uh, strategic environment that has been created in the Middle East after the Arab Spring. Brilliant. Well, I'm actually glad and delighted to hear that you had we had the opportunity to listen to more about what it is that you do and uh, how this links to our theme uh, in this episode. Uh, I'd like to, at this point, to thank you so much for your contribution and uh, I wish you all the best with your research. Thank you. Thank you. It was a pleasure. <laughs>